Yeah. Yeah, everybody says it differently. Yeah, Int very good question. And, and literally, in, and I will tell you that, that the, the theologians I studied are in agreement. I will give you both what they say and what others say, because I know other people say something different. But in, in my outline, it literally says, what is the whole no mother, no father thing about? <laughs> and so I will definitely talk about what are our choices there. Uh, I, I probably, yeah, I come down maybe on one side, but that is definitely a, when we get to heaven, we'll all go, oh yeah, sure, that's what was going on there. So I will talk about that. Any other questions? Don't assume I will talk about whatever your question is, because there's, you may have noticed, a lot in this week. A lot of deep stuff, yeah, a lot of deep stuff. In fact, in this section that we've read this week alone, I believe there are four words that are used nowhere else in the New Testament, and three of them are rare in ancient Greek altogether. So it's, it, it is, it's deep stuff. Okay, well, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, that we are here today. Thank you so much for these ladies, these, these generous, gracious ladies, Father, uh, for bringing them here. And I just pray that you would speak to us today through your word. Give us uh, ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts ready to be changed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we start today, today's passage, which is uh, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, is a transition. The author is going to transition away from the exhortation that he's previously given and back into his exposition on Melchizedek. Uh, that, that exposition began at Hebrews 5.1, where uh, he was talking about the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek just briefly, and then he switches over in 5.11 and says, we have much to say about this. But then he takes a detour. He takes a, a departure for a time to exhortation and warning. And, and in fact, a, a pretty harsh, well, very harsh, uh, one of the harshest in the whole New Testament warning. He, he is uh, exhorting his listeners about their spiritual immaturity. In fact, he calls them spiritual babies. Uh, and tells them it's time to grow up. They've been slow to learn, and it's time for them to learn the things they should already know. And then he goes on to tell them that there is no repentance for those who are apostate, for those who have rejected Christ so long as they are in that state of apostasy. Um, and then in this section that we'll look at first, this transition of Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, the author both builds on that exhortation he's been giving them, but he also begins to move back toward Jesus's high priestly ministry in the order of Melchizedek. In fact, uh, Dr. Guthrie calls this the on-ramp back to the highway of exposition concerning Jesus. But don't miss this, and it's going to be a minute or two before we read it, but don't miss this. Immediately after giving his listeners, what is definitely the harshest warning in all of Hebrews, he quickly turns to encourage them, to uh, give them hope, and that hope that only God can give. Now, if we look back at um, 
Oh, hi, Beckers. There we go. If we look back at just the verses that immediately preceded uh, what the, the transition uh, that we're going to talk about today, uh, I, I want to show you how this sort of connects up with what we're reading for today. He writes this in Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, right after he gives them the warning, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. That last point, he's, he's really um, transitioning to the transition to the exposition which is so like this author of Hebrews to have things so tightly ordered. Because what he's about to talk about is imitating those who through faith and patience have inherited what was promised. He's about to talk about that imitation and about that promise. Now, the entire section of exhortation that he gave us, 5.11 through here, through 6.12, really concentrated on human responsibility which might have left his listeners thinking, well, is this all up to me? Is this all about what I do? And so the author is going to quickly turn to assure his listeners and us uh, of God's provision on their behalf in the form of God's promises and an oath. So he tells them to imitate others who through their, imitate their faith and patience of others, and, and he's going to pick up both on this concept of imitation and on this word promise, on what has been promised. So as he moves back toward the exposition on Jesus and on the priesthood and the order of Melchizedek, Abraham is going to become exhibit A of those who waited with faith and patience that we should imitate. And then God's promises are also going to take center stage. So in essence, these verses, Hebrews 9 through 12, the author is setting up his transition back to his exposition, considering Jesus' high priesthood and the order of Melchizedek, which really causes me to just, I, I just will never cease to wonder at two things. I am just amazed by this author by his ability to so tightly weave these things together and, and bring in different points and then pick them up later, uh, it just amazes me. But even more uh, importantly, I am amazed by the profound love God must have for each one of us uh, to have provided for us through his son the answer to our deepest need. And he's going to talk about that uh, in this section. So beginning at verses 13 through 15, our author discusses the example of Abraham. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now here's the deal. God made promises to Abraham and kind of repeated those promises a number of times. Specifically, what the author has in mind here is from Genesis 22. Uh, now, 
and we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but I want you to understand, there's, to, to these early listeners that first heard this, there would be no greater example of faith and patience than Abraham. Um, and his, he, he was faithful and he persevered. He waited for the promises of God. And what were those promises? Well, God promised to, to give him many descendants, even though he was old, his wife was old, and they were childless. Uh, but he, God said, I will make of you a great nation. I will give you many descendants. I will make of you a great nation. He promised to give Abraham uh, the land, what we would call the promised land. He promised to bless Abraham and to make him a blessing to all people. So really great promises that he made. But the quote in verses 13 and 14 where it says, God swore by himself, because there was no one greater to swear by, and then said, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants, that particularly comes from Genesis 22. And you're probably familiar with the story, so I'm not going to go into any detail with it. But after Abraham and Sarah did have a son, Isaac, at some later point, God told Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him as an offering to God, which he ended up not having to do. Or God, or Abraham had said to Isaac, uh, when Isaac said, you know, we got the wood, we got the fire, where, where's, the, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. Now, I don't want to go into detail about about what all was going on there. I will tell you that this is a story, particularly as a child, that really, really troubled me. And I often thought, what on earth was God doing? There's more to it than this, but I will say that as an adult, I have come to realize that God was giving both Abraham and us a picture of what he would do through his son. That what Abraham was not eventually called to do, God himself would do, would sacrifice his son on, on our behalf in order that God might have a relationship with us. We have a God who is a God of relationship, and that is made abundantly clear in this section of Hebrews that we've, we've read this week. Now, given the audience that first received this uh, sermon, uh, this, this was a particularly good example for them because for a community struggling to persevere and to wait on the promises of God, the example of Abraham's patience amidst trial would have been very meaningful. So there are two primary components to this passage. The first one is the Lord's declaration, I swear by myself, which is setting up, our author is setting up Psalm 110.4, when God will again make an oath, this time concerning Jesus. And the second main uh, component of this passage is God's pledge to bless Abraham and to give him numerous descendants. The thing I wanted to pick up on for us as we think about this is this idea of waiting patiently, that Abraham received what he was promised after he waited patiently. Because I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think patience 
really comes very easily. It, at, least, at least it doesn't for me. I am not a naturally patient person. Some people may be, but I am not one of them. Um, but I do know that God is true to his promises and that he always answers prayer. Yes is an answer. No is an answer. And wait is an answer. I also know that God's waiting room is fertile ground for spiritual growth. Um, I actually did not ask her permission to tell this story, but I know that she would have given it to me anyway. My, my best friend and college roommate is named Chrissy. Well, I call her Chrissy. Really, nobody else does, but I call her Chrissy, and she's okay with that. Chrissy was uh, married to her college sweetheart, who after, golly, 10, 12 years, I can't remember now even, decided that he married too young, he really would rather play, and he walked out. Uh, and Chrissy did not want that divorce. Uh, but it did cause her to grow spiritually in a way that she would not have otherwise grown. She had come to know Christ some years earlier. She claims I shared the gospel with her. I don't actually remember that, but if she wants to think that, that's fine. Uh, and, but it was not until Rich walked out that she began to trust in God. She didn't want it. Uh, she, she tried to fight it, but it happened. And then she began to wait. At some point, she began to pray that God would bring her a husband. A friend told her that she had gone through the same thing, and she began to refer to this future husband as Boaz, if you know that story. And in fact, a friend told her, I bought a pair of jeans and hung them over the post of my bed that would eventually be Boaz's jeans. Well, so Chrissy decided to buy something, and she bought this XXLT uh, a plaid uh, flannel shirt and hung it on the chair. I was praying for Boaz. She was praying for Boaz. Everyone was praying for Boaz. It took Boaz 12 years to get there. Boaz is, is named Bill, and Bill is about 6'6", and this big, Boaz wears an XXLT shirt. His plaid shirt fits him perfectly. God's waiting room was a tremendously, believe me, many, many late night, we're both crying on the phone, phone calls between the two of us. God's waiting room is not an easy place to be. But it is a place where we grow in ways we would not otherwise grow. And I will tell you, I am 100% sure that if Chrissy were here, and I wish she was, if Chrissy were here, she would tell you that Bill was emphatically worth that weight. And that the way she has come to know and trust in God was worth that weight as well. Now, sometimes when we're in God's waiting room, we figure out ways where we can help God out a little bit. And so we try to just kind of hurry things along. That doesn't work very well. It often ends in disaster. Just ask Abraham about the sleep with your servant in order to get an air plan. Um, that didn't work very well for him either. And helping God along often ends in disaster. 
And part of the reason is that growing saints takes time. We are not spiritual chia pets, lady, ladies. It takes time to grow a saint. I love what Dr. Guthrie says about this. He says, if God weren't growing sons and daughters, things would not take nearly as long. But since he is more interested in our growth than he is in our getting, waiting becomes a very essential, essential and useful means toward that end. He doesn't traffic in add water and mix saints. Very, very true. He goes on to say that marching and quick marching are much easier for God's warriors than standing still. And yet, we are often called to wait, and often for our own good. So how is it then that we are to wait? Because we're not simply called upon to wait and wait like this. <sighs> okay, I'll wait. God is calling us in his waiting room to wait in prayer, to call on him in that time. And Chrissy definitely waited in prayer. God has called us to wait um, in faith, holding on to that anchor of hope. And finally, God has called us to wait in quiet patience, knowing that we have a God who hears and answers in his time. I often quote Chrissy, who in the midst of waiting for Boaz said to me, God is never late, although he's rarely early. <laughs> and that is true. Verses 16 through 18 say this, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered us may be greatly encouraged. So the first thing that he talks about is human oaths. He begins by talking about human oaths. I will tell you that this section has a ton of legal language, technical legal language. And this concept of an oath is a legal oath. I was wondering today, do, do we still in court have people say, so help me God? I'm not sure we do. Do we still? Okay. So that's an oath that they're taking. And what does that do if somebody raises their right hand and says, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. They are swearing by someone definitely higher than themselves. And what that oath does is it gives credibility to the testimony. And it confirms the truthfulness of that testimony. People can lie under oath. Uh, it's a really stupid thing to do, but they can. But that oath gives both credibility and lends to the truthfulness, confirms the truthfulness of it. So what the author is doing here is making an argument from lesser to greater. If that is true of human oaths, how much more true, how much more reliable most must God's oath be. Now, he's not saying that God is taking a cue from a human uh, oath-taking thing. He's using it as an analogy. 
But he's just making the point is if we trust in the oaths that human take, humans take, how much more reliable is God's oath? Now, why did God take this oath? What was the reason for the oath? It was to make clear the unchanging nature of his purpose. That word make clear means to prove, to give proof. So God was proving that his purpose was unchanging. Now, in the immediate context, that purpose was his promises to Abraham um, and the fulfillment of those promises that he made to Abraham. But in the fuller context, those promises are part of God's plan of redemption, his redemptive purpose for all humankind. And that purpose, too, is unchanging. It is immutable. Uh, this was all intended to give encouragement to his original listeners. He calls them refugees, which is a very uh, picturesque, a very colorful term that brings to mind the Israelites who were refugees from Egypt. And he tells them to take hold of the hope that God has offered them in Christ. God intends, intended for them, and intends for us to find hope in his promises and in his purpose. So what are the two unchangeable things? That by two unchangeable things in which God, uh, in which it is possible for God to uh, uh, lie that give us courage and that encourage us. The first thing is God's promise. The first unchangeable thing is God's promise. And the second is the oath that confirms that promise. These two things together give us the strongest possible grounds for holding firm to our hope. And then he goes on to talk about that firm, that stable hope in verses, whoa, the floor does a weird thing there. In verses 19 and 20, he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this is a picture of stability that we're being given here. This anchor of hope, uh, in this hope in God's purposes, in God's promises, holds us firm in our faith and allows us to persevere through life's storms. God's promises are a superior basis for our hope. So this picture of stability, this, the word firm, we have this hope, firm and secure. That word firm means safe, that we are held safe. And that word secure means reliable, well-founded, and confirmed. As Dr. Guthrie puts it, he says, our hope as an anchor, our hope as an anchor offers both safety and a reliable basis for living. We are held safe in our reliable, well-founded hope in God's promises and his purpose. But then what is this thing about the inner sanctuary that, that it enters, hope enters, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain 
where Jesus went before us. Well, that's talking about the temple and the tabernacle. If you haven't already, I would suggest that you look at the the pictures of those or the drawings of those at the end of the the study. And within both the temple and the the tabernacle, behind a curtain, uh, after the outer court and the inner court and all these other things, was this area where God's presence dwelt. And it was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And into that room, behind that curtain, only the high priest could enter, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Your your average human being couldn't go anywhere near it. That access to God's presence was blocked until Jesus died on the cross when God's word tells us the veil of the temple, that curtain, was torn in two. And Jesus gave to us through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension, access to God. Uh, And our author has already told us that we can draw near to God. Indeed, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We have immediate and continual access to God because of Jesus. So we can now enter that place and will one day enter the heavenly most holy place where God's presence dwells because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Now it does tell us that he entered that uh, both the earthly, but he entered the heavenly most holy place on our behalf and made it possible for us to enter it. But in what sense does our hope enter the most holy place? And what that is saying is that believers in hope may now enter where Jesus has already gone in reality. That our hope is that we will one day enter that heavenly most holy place. So now he's going to begin his actual exposition of Melchizedek in, in Uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7, and he begins with a very brief background on who the heck was Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains priest forever. So first I want to say that the point and the purpose of this, not just verses 1 through 3, but verses 1 through 10, is to prove that Melchizedek's priesthood, the the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, is superior to the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood that that began with Levi, Uh, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Levi, and that tribe became priests. Aaron was the first high priest, the brother of Moses was the first high priest, and he was, of course, a direct descendant of Levi. Um, And so he's wanting to show that the, the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood. Now, he also gives then a brief summary of the story, which is in Genesis 14, 7 through 20. 
He tells us that Melchizedek met Abraham. Abraham was coming back from winning a war with some kings that had taken his good-for-nothing nephew Lot captive. He'd recovered Lot, he'd taken plunder, and as he was returning, Melchizedek, he met Melchizedek uh, in Jerusalem, uh, which is what uh, the Melchizedek was king of, Jerusalem, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave a tenth of his plunder, tithed his plunder, to Melchizedek. So the basis um, for the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood can be found in this very brief story. The first is that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because you would only tithe to someone who was greater. Secondly, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and it is always the greater person who blesses the lesser. So Melchizedek clearly was greater than Abraham, and therefore greater than Levi, greater than Aaron, greater than any of Abraham's descendants. But there's another basis for the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that is that his priesthood has an eternal nature. The Levites were only priests so long as they lived. When they died, they were no longer priests. Further, that priesthood eventually ended altogether. There is no longer a high priest in Jerusalem or anywhere else. That priesthood is not eternal. The priesthood in the order of Melchizedek is, in fact, eternal. And then he talks about the meaning of his name. And if you look on the board, Melech means king, Sedek means righteousness, king of righteousness. Uh, Salem is the word shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And in fact, he was king of Jerusalem, of uh, the king of Jerusalem, and Salem means peace. He was king of righteousness and king of peace. Who does that sound like? Right from the beginning, our author is connecting Melchizedek to Jesus. So who was Melchizedek? Well, there are two possible options. Some theologians would tell you that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Christ, that he was, in fact, Christ coming down in pre-incarnate form. Um, there are some problems with that. First of all, it doesn't read that way, really, until you get to the no mother, no father, no genealogy. But even when you get to that, while Jesus was and is and always will be eternal, he actually does have a genealogy. He actually did have a mother. His father was God. Mary was his mother. His genealogy can be found in, um, in both Luke and in Matthew. Uh, and secondly, it doesn't say he was Christ. It said, says he was like Christ, that word typos, a type of Christ um, or like Christ. And certainly our author of Hebrews, had our author of Hebrews believed he was a pre-incarnate uh, picture of Christ or, or version of Christ, he, he probably would have said that. The reason some theologians believe that 
is this whole no mother, no father thing, which I'll get to in a minute. So what's our second choice? Our second choice is that Melchizedek was an actual historical figure, a human being, who prefigured or foreshadowed Christ. And we see prefiguring and foreshadowing of Jesus throughout the Old Testament, everywhere, including Abraham and Isaac and all kinds of other places. He was a typos. He was a pattern or a model of Jesus. He was like Christ. He was foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus whose priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus who is indeed forever and eternal. So Melchizedek is not the son of God, rather he is like the son of God. So so he's making this point, uh, so then what does that, um, what does that whole no mother, no father stuff mean? The the author is making a point uh, on the eternality or the the eternity of the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. That's his point he's making. So when we look at this mother-father stuff, our author is making what rabbis often did, an argument from silence, from what scripture does not say. Most theologians don't like doing that today, but it was done all the time by rabbis and by teachers in the ancient world. So let me try to explain this better. The scripture is silent on those things about Melchizedek. It's just four verses. It doesn't tell us who his mother is. It doesn't tell us who his father is. It doesn't give us his genealogy. It doesn't tell us about his death. Abraham slept with his fathers. We know he died. We know something about when he died and how he died. The scripture is silent about those things concerning Melchizedek. And since the Genesis text tells us nothing of Melchizedek's genealogy, of his parentage or of his death, his priesthood has neither the qualifications nor the parameters one finds concerning the Levitical priesthood. It's not limited by those things as the Levitical priesthood was. The Levites were priests until death, but scripture places no such limitations on Melchizedek because it doesn't say anything about his death. It doesn't mean he didn't die. It means it doesn't place those limitations because it doesn't even mention it, and it doesn't mention it on purpose. Um, So what he's saying is that the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, not Melchizedek himself, lasts forever. It's not that Melchizedek is still priest. No, Jesus is the priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that priesthood is eternal. It is forever. And the reason Genesis account is silent on those things is so that there are not the limitations placed on on Melchizedek's priesthood that there are on the Levitical priesthood. Uh, Both theologians I read, both conservative theologians I read would say that second thing is true and that the answer to the no mother no father thing is that is that the author is saying scripture is silent on these things and it's silent for a reason 
Um, I hope that makes some sense. I know it's deep. I know it's tough. Uh, that's a distillation of a lot of pages down to, uh, to a couple of minutes. But if you have questions on that, further questions on that, I'm happy to talk to you about it. So then he goes on and talks about the greatness, just real briefly, of Melchizedek. He says, just think how great he was, meaning Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of, of the plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, meaning blessed Abraham. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So I'm just going to treat this real briefly. I want you to understand the primary point here is the tithe and the blessing, the tithe that Abraham gave to Melchizedek and the blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abraham. And what our author is saying is that clearly Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because he received the tithe rather than give it and he gave the blessing rather than receive it. Uh, and so his priesthood is everlasting. Now there's also this idea in Hebrew that the descendants of anyone dwell inside of them before they're born. And so what that is saying when it says that in essence Levi tithed to Melchizedek as well, it's, it's saying that because Levi is a descendant, because he was in Abraham's body, he was in essence, tithing to Melchizedek as well. The point the author is making is that Melchizedek, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, which he clearly is, he is obviously greater than Levi, and any, his priesthood is greater, is superior to uh, the Levitical priesthood. Uh, and he's going to go on and talk about the superiority of that priesthood. There we go. Uh, and first we're going to read uh, verses uh, 11 through 19. If perfection could have been attained through the Levit Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, another of Jacob's sons. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek, Jesus, appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, who his descendants were, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared... This is from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Boy, there is a lot here, and it's 1123. Um, in verses 11 and 19, the main point the author is making is that Jesus gives us a better hope. 
And, and he shows us that through showing us the ineffectiveness of the Levitical priesthood. Had it been affected, have it, had it been effective, had it been able to achieve what God wanted, which was for us to be in relationship with him forever, there wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. There wouldn't have been a need for the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. But it was not effective. It could not achieve perfection. Again, this word, as we've seen before, in this case, teleosis, which is a form of teleos, to be made perfect. And what it means is to arrive at a desired end or to reach a goal. So the Levitical priesthood could not bring about God's desired end of bringing people near to himself through complete remission of sin. The Levitical, um, the Levitical sacrifices for the removal of sin had to be done over and over and over again, daily sacrifices, yearly sacrifices. It never ended. And he's going to go into more detail on this. But it could not save people once for all as the sacrifice of Jesus did. So he says when there is a change then of priesthood, there must also be a change in the law because the law was based on the priesthood. So since the, the Levitical priesthood has been superseded, the law covenant established on that priesthood must also change. This is referring to the new covenant, what Jesus called the new covenant in my blood uh, at the Last Supper. Now, let me tell you that God's moral law is unchanging. It is still a sin to kill and to steal and to do all those things. However, he, the author here is talking specifically about the Levitical sacrifices, the ritual law, uh, and the, the priesthood that gave birth to that. Those sacrifices, that system of sacrifices, has been fulfilled in Christ. It is no longer necessary. It even no longer exists. So this change of law, then, he says, becomes even more clear when we realize that it's on the basis of Christ's immortality and his eternal priesthood that we have this new um, this new way, this new covenant. Now he calls the law weak and useless, which really more um, accurately means that it was ineffective. It, it's not that the, the, the Levitical priesthood didn't have a purpose. It had a number of purposes, not the least of which was to foreshadow the sacrifice of Jesus. <coughs> but it means that it was ineffective in forgiving sin completely as well as bringing people into intimate relationship with God. The new priesthood gave us a better hope. God introduced a better hope, meaning he introduced a way for us to be in relationship, a way for him to achieve that desired end on our behalf. Secondly, we have a better basis for our hope. Uh, and that better basis is the oath of God. In verses 20 through 22, it says, and it was not without oath. This new priesthood was not without oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became priest with an oath when God said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, 
You are priest forever. Notice he no longer talks about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is gone. Jesus is the focus now. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So he brings Psalm 110 verse 4 back in. He quotes that first part, which links it to Genesis 22 for the first time. He hasn't quoted that part before. And he tells us this is God's declaration to Jesus. He swore on oath that Jesus is priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Um, And so Jesus' priesthood was established based on an oath. In contrast, the Levitical priesthood was not based on an oath. It was based on a command of God, which is less firm, less secure, and is not as strong a basis as an oath of God, which makes Jesus a guarantee, or better yet, a guarantor, of our salvation. That again is a legal term. Uh, Engias is up there, is the legal term. And it means a person who guaranteed the position or endeavors of someone else while putting himself at risk. Who does that sound like? Jesus is the guarantor of our salvation. Jesus is the guarantor of God's covenant promises And therefore, it is a better covenant because it was established by by God's oath and it is guaranteed by Jesus whose priesthood is eternal in contrast to the Levitical priesthood which had neither of those things. Our hope in God's covenant promises is therefore secure. Uh, We're going to have to end here. I will try to start and, and get through this in the next part. But I do want to just end by talking about Christ's ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. And I just want to read you this quote by Dr. P.T. O'Brien, who said, Christ offered the definitive and ultimate sacrifice of himself once for all. He did not make an offering for himself, but of himself for the sake of others. Why? Why would Jesus do that? The answer to that is precisely this. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish but that we might live in relationship with God through Christ now and forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the depth of your word, for the depth of your love. It is unfathomable, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll pick up where I left off and try to get through that next week, so hang on to your notes. Thanks for hanging in there, ladies.